This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to Money and Markets. I'm Laura Suter and this week we're going to be talking about what that pesky new variant is doing to markets, the latest in the Evergrande saga and how China is trying to manage the issue, and we talk rising house prices and how it might be having a big impact on lifetime ISA savers. I'm joined today by Danny Hewson. Hi Laura, yes we're going to be looking at the financial gifts that people are giving for Christmas. Tom Selby is back with Pensions Corner and a question about whether or not it is ever too late to start saving and we have an interview all about the investment gap among younger generations. So first I know that you and Dan talked a lot about Omicron last week um, but let's just have a little update on what's been happening with markets so far with the new Covid variant. Well, investors seem to have agreed that last week's brutal sell-off, maybe, was a bit too knee-jerk because we've had comments from US medical advisor Anthony Fauci, who has said that reports from South Africa said that Omicron cases there had only shown mild symptoms, which has basically made everybody think, okay, this is not going to have such a damaging impact on global economies had as had first been thought. Now, there is still a note of caution because this variant does seem to make transmission faster and there are questions about whether that could offset the benefits of milder symptoms. But overall, as I say, markets have let out a big sigh of relief. This morning, European stocks rose to their highest in more than a week. Both London and Wall Street have really enjoyed some decent trading. And as we're recording this on Tuesday lunchtime before um, US stock markets open, the suggestion is they are going to open incredibly strongly. Now, yesterday, it was really noticeable that travel stocks had rebounded substantially. In fact, when you were looking at the top of the S&P 500 rises at opening bell yesterday, it looked more like a travel expo. We also had... (laughs) British Airways owner IAG. Um, They were the FTSE 100's biggest riser. And we also had some really decent gains for the hospitality sector. Names like Weatherspoons and Mitchell and Butler were up and that runner form has continued through this morning. There's also been a jump for British drug maker GlaxoSmithKline after it said, news which cheered markets again, that its antibody-based COVID drug is effective against all mutations of the new variant. And what's been really noticeable in Europe and clearly seen when you're tracking Nasdaq futures is that there is a really strong rebound in tech stocks You know, in recent days, we have seen them taking a battering as investors really priced in an aggressive tightening of monetary policy in the US, across Europe and here in the UK. So why the change of heart? Remember, we've got the latest US inflation numbers out on Friday. They are expected to be pretty hard to swallow. Add to that, we've had warnings about inflation lingering above the 2% target for years, which you might think would push the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England to push the button on rate rises quickly. But Omicron has changed things. And Laura, the uncertainty of what happens next seems to demand that everybody takes a breath. 
I know. So what we've had now is where people thought that a rate rise this month, so the next decision from the Bank of England is on the 16th of December, people thought that that was um, fairly likely after they didn't raise rates in November. Um, That now is looking less likely. So particularly because um, Michael Saunders, who is one of the people who makes the decisions, votes for this, He was one of only two people on the committee to vote for a rate rise last month. And he has now said that he wants to see more about what the impact of this new variant has on markets before making a decision. And markets took that as a sign that there will be less chance of a rate rise next month and any decision will be pushed back to next year. So we're still in wait and see mode. Nothing is certain, but it looks less likely, which when you consider what the Bank of England was saying just a couple of months ago, um, feels like quite a switch. It does feel like quite a switch, particularly because investors really had, they bought it, hadn't they? They were pricing it in. And when it didn't happen in November, there were lots of comments about unreliable boyfriends. But, you know, Omicron maybe has changed things. And actually, a bit of wait and see. Let's just see exactly how this new variant does impact the global economy, whether or not those supply bottlenecks increase or loosen, how people spend their money over Christmas, and that way maybe they can make a slightly more informed choice. Seems like they're quite often in wait and see approach. The the reason for not, <laughs> not raising rates in November was to wait and see on jobs figures and the final impact of furlough. Now we're on wait and see on variants. So I'm excited to see what the new year brings for the new wait and see. But we've had some fairly bleak outlooks for the retail market over the past few years, haven't we? But in the lead up to Christmas, are people actually getting out there and shopping and spending their cash, Danny? Well, I certainly have been. Did you spend on Black Friday? <laughs> I actually bought two things and they were very boring. I bought a light for video work at work and I bought some baby grows for my daughter and that is the dullest Black Friday shopping I've ever heard of. Cute baby grows. They were very cute, yeah. Well, you see, clothing, that was a massive um, part of the retail sales boost that um, we've had reported by KPMG and the British Retail Consortium. As I say, clothing, toys, jewellery, and also spending on bars and restaurants, Rose. What's happened is because we had all those warnings about potential issues with supply chains, people have got out there and they have shopped early And Black Friday, which was always one day or maybe sort of a long weekend, which merged into Cyber Monday. Well, now it's a month long affair. Hooray. We can all celebrate by spending more money. And it seems that we have been doing that. We've also had some separate data out from Barclay Card, which tracks nearly half of all UK credit and debit card transactions. And spending on payment cards in Britain rose 16% in November when you compare it with the same period in 2019. So, you know, that really shows that people have wanted to get out there to spend, to get ready for a Christmas to really remember after last year's disappointment. As I say, spending on bars, pubs and clubs was also up 34% compared with the same period in 2019. And This is a massively important because consumer spend really does continue to drive the UK's economic rebound. In the three months to September, household consumption contributed 1.2 percentage points of the 1.3% of economic growth. 
And I think also maybe a lot of that, the story that we were hearing a couple of months ago about shipping delays, everyone knows that there's delays on delivery stuff, might have prompted some people to get out and Christmas shop early for fear that things wouldn't arrive in time. Oh, sure. And the question now is whether or not all that spend happened in November. And when we get the figures for December, when you compare them with normal years, they will look pretty gloomy because some people, you know, you you can only spend a pound once, can't you? And if you spent it in November getting ready to avoid those shipping issues, you don't have it to spend in December. And then there's also the big question mark, exactly how will consumer confidence hold up against the um, fears of the Omicron variant, will they still get out there and socialise? Will they still get out there and shop? Or will they go back to clicking and having it delivered? Speaking of delivery companies, it's not been such a rosy week for some of them, has it? No, no, particularly for um, companies that deliver food in Europe. So takeaway firms Deliveroo and Just Eat, they had an awful day yesterday because of fears of a crackdown on the gig economy in Europe. In fact, Deliveroo sank to a record low of £2.20 before closing down 3.1%. They've risen a touch today. But remember, you know, the company, when it listed in April, it was 3.90. So that just shows how much it's fallen. We also had Just Eat falling yesterday. That, that has rebounded quite strongly today. Some investors possibly buying the dip. But We are expecting a decision from the European Commission tomorrow, and it's widely reported that they're going to propose stricter rules which will require companies to directly employ delivery drivers and riders, because, of course, at the moment, many of these takeaway firms class their delivery staff as independent contractors rather than employees, which means that they don't have to provide paid sick leaves, workplace pensions. So the change if, as expected, it does come, will increase costs, potentially leading to higher prices for consumers in Europe. And it's also worth a mention Uber, because um, it could soon have to start charging its UK customers VAT at 20%. Now, this is because of a high court judgment, uh, which says that private hire taxi operators must make contracts with their customers. So it could have huge consequences for the industry and other private hire firms might also have to add that. And then at the top, I mentioned that there was another update to the Evergrande saga. So Danny, the Chinese government's now got involved to try and reassure investors. How's that going? Well, in the last couple of hours, it has not gone particularly well, Laura. So news coming from Reuters says that five sources have said that some offshore bondholders of China's Evergrande group didn't receive coupon payments at the end of this 30-day grace period, which was up yesterday. Now, this push pushes the company right to the edge of formal default. Remember, it's been flirting with it for, for months after amassing more than $300 billion in liabilities. $300 billion, Laura. I mean, that is a huge amount. You can't even really picture that amount of money, can you? I'd give it a good go, but it's a lot of zeros. It really is. We know last Friday that it sought help from the government, which agreed to send out a working group to assess and sort out some of the issues. And many analysts saw that as the start of managed restructuring. Now, 
Most of the company's debt is in mainland China, but it does have nearly $20 billion in international bonds. And today, after flirting with a small rise in its share price, it has absolutely tanked. Now, if you think about it, a descent into default would make Evergrande the largest and highest profile casualty of China's campaign to rein in the property sector after years of debt fueled growth. Because it is largely contained to China and because investors have had months to prepare, I mean, we've been talking about this for months, we are unlikely to see too much market turbulence, especially because, as you say, Beijing has now taken a broader step to offset the impact. It's Central bank said on Monday that it would reduce the amount of money that banks are required to set aside as reserves, which frees up money for lending. And local governments in Chinese cities are also working closely with the company to try and really stave off any social unrest because there's an estimated 1.4 million unfurnished apartments which have been pre-sold to prospective homeowners. And, you know, there, there is going to be an awful lot of disappointment, an awful lot of ordinary Chinese people who are going to be finding themselves out of pocket. We're now likely to see um, Evergrande really working with creditors to try and thrash out some kind of restructuring plan. But investors will probably receive far less than the face value of the debt that they hold. Um, we're talking about the Chinese housing sector, but we had some new figures out earlier today for the UK housing sector, Laura. And um, yeah, it, it's still roaring, despite the fact that we had the end of the stamp duty holiday. But uh, I know it's particularly worth looking at lifetime ISA savers and how this roaring housing market affects them. Yeah, so today's figures were the Halifax House Price Index, um, and that shows that we're seeing the highest house price rises since before the financial crash. So if we look over the past three months, there was house price growth of 3.5% around about, um, and that is the highest quarterly growth since the end of 2006. So we're seeing some pretty record house growth figures. Um how it relates to lifetime ISA holders is if you're saving through a lifetime ISA for your first property, which lots of people will do because you get a government top up for it, um, you have a cap on the value of the property that you can buy, which is £450,000. Now, we've got to acknowledge at the start here that that is a very high value house and there's a very large amount of money. However, that limit was set when the Lifetime ISA was first launched in April 2017, so more than four years ago, and that hasn't increased. Now, during that time, we've seen property prices soar, particularly over the past year to 18 months. Um, if that limit had kept pace with rising house prices, it would now sit at more than £550,000. This is more of an issue in the southeast and in London, where property prices tend to be higher um, and where people who have maybe leapt that first stage of buying a flat and want to go straight to buying a house um, or a larger flat, uh, where they might come up against this limit. Um, and the issue is that if you... Um, uh, attempt to buy a property larger than 
£450,000, um, then you will not be able to use any of the government bonus that you were given for the lifetime ISA. So, for example, if someone had put in the annual limit of £4,000 into their lifetime ISA over the past um, five years, they would then have seen £5,000 added to it by the government in the bonus. And so they would have a £25,000 deposit, which is pretty healthy. Um, however, if they then ended up buying a house that was even £500 over that £450,000 limit, they would face an exit penalty on that lifetime ISA if they still wanted to use that deposit money, which obviously they would, um, and you pay a 25% exit penalty. So they would effectively have to pay an exit charge of £6,250, which is money they're then going to have to find to supplement their deposit. So I think the issue here is that people need to be aware of this when they're using their lifetime ISA, but also if you're going in to negotiate for property in a very busy, hot market as it is at the moment, you probably want to be looking at houses at a fair amount below that £450,000 limit. If you're going in and looking at property that is priced at £450,000, if you end up in some sort of bidding war or, or negotiating um, and it goes above that limit, then you're going to be facing the choice of either saying goodbye to that property or having to say goodbye to the bonus money that you saw on your lifetime ISA and finding thousands of pounds to make up that shortfall. At some point, prices are going to have to at least slow because for many people, they're right now on the cusp of them not being affordable at all, particularly when you think about, you know, wages and, and how much money that people can borrow. It's it's a it's a very tricky situation and we're seeing prices rising across the country as well. And with the volume of people moving, you would think at some point we've got to reach a point where anyone that wants to move has already moved. And I think people thought that that would be the case when the stamp duty holiday finally ended at the end of September. But actually, there doesn't seem to be this kind of cliff edge um, of transactions and people still are moving. So it's definitely going to be an interesting one to watch in the new year, which of course is a time when lots of people decide their house wasn't big enough for Christmas. It's a good time to move and, and think about putting their house on the market. And speaking of the lifetime ISA, so it can be used to buy a first property, as we've talked about, but it can also be used to save for retirement and you can cash it in at age 60. So Tom Selby has someone asking whether they are better off using a pension or a lifetime ISA when they're saving for retirement in today's pensions corner. And I know it's a question that lots of people will have. So, Tom, why don't you go through the full question first? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is a, a question from an anonymous uh, listener. So they're 35 years old and for various reasons, they've only just got around to thinking about saving for retirement. There'll be lots of people in that position, I'm sure. Um, they're self-employed and their earnings tend to be between 30 and £45,000, so a basic rate taxpayer. Um, they've seen adverts for lifetime ISAs and SIPs, self-invested personal pensions, and they're considering setting up a regular savings plan. So Two questions here. Have I left it too late to save for retirement? And if not, then which of a lifetime ISA and a pension would be most appropriate for me? Now, I've 
I've reached a, a, a vintage in my life now where um, a 35-year-old asking uh, whether or not they've saved too late is slightly depressing because that's younger than I am. Um, the, <laughs> the, 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 the answer is no. Um, clearly, the, the easiest way, as we always talk about on this podcast, to build up a decent-sized retirement pot is to start as early as you can and save often. But if you're 35 years old, then you've still got plenty of time on your side. So take the example of someone who saves £3,000 a year in a pension. We'll take a pension for now. So that's the equivalent of about 250 quid a month going into their pension over 30 years. If we assume investment growth after charges at around 4%, the fund could be worth 175 grand. So plenty of time to build up a decent sized pot of money and no need to panic. But it's good that they're thinking about it and good that they're thinking about starting now as well so and I imagine your rule Tom would be that it's never really too late even if this was someone who was 55 and saying is it too late to start exactly yeah there's 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 tax incentives are there to encourage you to save for retirement whether that's through a lifetime ISA or a SIP although I said the lifetime ISA wouldn't be available to someone who was 55 because there's age restrictions around it but where at whatever stage you are in your life, certainly if you're under the age of 75, that's when a tax advantage of a SIP will will stop being offered to you. It's worth making contributions if you can afford to, because the the government incentivizes you to do so. So let's let's go into some of those differences, I guess, between those two products that are, that were mentioned by the person who asked the question. So, um, lifetime ISAs and SIPs both benefit from tax free investment growth. Um, the main differences are in how much an upfront boost you get for locking your money away, what you can save each year and the tax that you pay when you come to make withdrawals. So if we start with a lifetime ISA, you can save up to four grand a year into a lifetime ISA with each one pound you subscribe to this point topped up by 25 pence from the government. So a 25% upfront bonus. You can then, as you mentioned, access your fund tax-free in three different circumstances. So when you reach your 60th birthday, if you're going to buy a first home worth 450 grand or less, or if you become terminally ill. However, if you need to actually access your money for any other reason, then a 25% government-imposed early withdrawal penalty will apply. And that means you might get back less than you initially put in. Now, I mentioned the age restrictions around the lifetime ISA, and they'll they'll be important for certain people, although the person in this question is 35 years old, so they can apply for it. So you can take out a lifetime ISA if you're age 18 up to the day before your 40th birthday. And then once open, you can carry on paying into a lifetime ISA up to the day before your 50th birthday. So that's how the LISA works. If you compare that to a self-invested personal pension, and the tax relief you get on a, on personal contributions into a self-invested personal pension are capped at 100% of your earnings. So if you earn £20,000, for example, then you can pay up to £20,000 a year into a SIP and benefit from tax relief on those contributions. Um, you and your employer, if you're employed, can tax efficiently contribute up to a maximum of £40,000 a year in total into a pension. So that's the annual allowance. Um, I won't go into the details on this, but if you're a very high earner or if you've already accessed your pension, then your annual allowance may be lower, but we don't have time to go through all of the different variations that can apply to people there. Now, in in terms of the the tax boost that you get and the comparison between the lifetime ISA and a, and a SIP, if you're a basic rate taxpayer, as our reader is here, they'll 
automatically benefit from what is effectively a 25% upfront bonus in the SIP. So that's the same as they get from a lifetime ISA. The main difference in terms of accessing is the age at which you can access. So you can access, access a lifetime ISA from age 60 and it's tax-free, whereas money saved in a pension can't be accessed until age 55 at the moment with a quarter of the money tax-free and the rest taxed in the same way as income. So in terms of whether or which, which option to go for, if you are in the position of this, if you're a basic rate taxpayer so, and, and, you're, and you're not employed, so you can't be in your workplace pension scheme and get a match contribution, then the lifetime ISIS combination of a 25% upfront bonus, which is the same as a SIP, combined with tax-free withdrawals is definitely attractive and potentially will be more attractive to, for some people than saving in a SIP. However, if you're a higher or additional rate taxpayer, so earning more than just over £50,000 in 2021-22, then the tax relief on offer in a pension is likely to mean that it will be more attractive to you, certainly from a tax perspective, although there's a bit more flexibility there with the lifetime ISA. Thanks, Tom. Now Christmas is fast approaching, and while some people will be out buying presents, Others do still prefer to give cash. And I know that I've got to give cash to uh, my two nephews, which is really boring. And I always try and get them sweets as well. But cash is what they want. And Laura, I know you've been looking at what monetary gifts people give. Yeah. So firstly, I was looking at how much people are planning to spend this Christmas. Now, I went into this with the theory that people might be spending a bumper amount to make up for last Christmas, which was a bit of a damp squib. But um, actually, about half of people are going to spend the same. And 40% of people plan to spend less than they did last year. Um, And only 8% of people plan to spend more. I think what we're really seeing is the effect of the squeeze on people's incomes and spending over the past year and people have decided that they're going to spend less on Christmas and maybe what last year taught them is that it's more important to spend time with family than spend lots of money on presents Um, but I also looked at the type of monetary gifts that people were giving as you mentioned Danny and People are still giving physical cash, um, but generally it's the older generations that are keeping this alive. So it's grandparents slipping a fiver into a Christmas card that are keeping some of this alive. Um, 40% of people are planning to give gift cards, which I thought seemed a bit old school, but then I realised that there are so many gift cards now for digital downloads and for online games where you can then buy the currency in that. So I think that's caused a bit of a resurgence in gift cards. Oh, yeah, they, they are definitely to be had in my family. And in fact, uh, I think I've spent more money on gift cards this year than I ever have. Yeah, and I think that that is clearly a trend. And um, checks, remember them? They're still around. 4% of people are planning to give money through checks. Obviously really? quite safe, but a bit of a faff to pay into the bank these days, isn't it? Well, no. Now it's much easier to pay a check in because I had my first check in a couple of years the other day. I had a, a rebate from my uh, gas provider and take a photograph and it immediately uploads to your bank account. And there you go. It The money is in there. You don't need to leave the house. Ah, oh, perfect. Clever. Music to my ears in this horrible weather. 
Yeah. Um, and the other area of surprise for me was premium bonds, which I thought were, I mean, obviously not given in every family, but I thought they were a fairly common gift from, particularly from grandparents to grandkids, um, are, are waning in popularity. So only 2% of people were planning to give them, which is kind of a minuscule amount. And actually, it's the same amount, um, same number of people that plan to give cryptocurrency this year. So that shows um, how unpopular they are. But I think the interest rate on them has dwindled. Um, and maybe people prefer just to give gift cards and cash. And talking of um, younger people getting into investing, maybe putting the money that they get from their grandparents into something other than sweets or games, there's an investment gap where younger people say that they can't access financial advice. Laura, you've been chatting to Prakash Chandra Mohan, who is Strategy Director at TISA, which is a trade body in the savings industry, on exactly what can be done to get more young people into investing. So you've been doing a lot of work on the advice gap and also on why people are saving their money, but they're not taking that step to investing it, particularly among um, younger generations. So let's tackle that bit first. Why aren't people investing their money? Why are they just choosing to keep it in savings? So, Laurie, I mean, this is a really big problem now, especially with where inflation is headed. Uh, And there's a host of reasons why people aren't investing their money. Uh, First thing I'd say is that a really large proportion of consumers don't have the confidence to invest. And in a recent survey that we did, we found that almost half of investors said they had very low confidence, actually, to, to make an investment decision. And in fact, it was just one in five people telling us that they had high confidence to make an investment decision. Um, so then we dug into you know, what is driving this lack of confidence to invest uh, so many people. And what we found is that people worry that they're going to lose their money. And that was the number one reason. Uh, they find it all too complex and confusing. Um, they feel they don't have the right experience to make investment decisions. Uh, they don't know enough about the options, don't know where to start. Uh, so, And these findings... I mean, we found them quite intuitive, actually, and we didn't feel that anyone should be surprised about them. Uh, but really, the industry hasn't, um, hasn't solved the issues for consumers. And what it boils down for us is that consumers aren't getting the support they need you know, from the industry to make sensible investment decisions. You know, people have been left to their own devices it's all too complex and confusing and the industry is just not delivering the reassurance that people need to choose an investment product. And so surely part of the answer to that, if, if people have a lack of confidence, part of the answer might lie in the financial advice community. So financial advisors could kind of take over for individuals um, and, and that lack of confidence would kind of be handed off to someone else. But um that community isn't necessarily interested in the younger people who don't have that much to invest, are they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are big capacity constraints for for the advice community. I mean, you've got how many advisors in the UK? Let, let's call it 30,000 advisors. Um, but how many adults in the UK need support uh, with their finances? It's around sort of 40 million. And you, you're just never going to get 30,000 advisors supporting 40 million people properly. But Laura, I think the bigger issue is that consumers actually have an aversion 
just seeing an advi- seeing an advisor. So even if there were millions of, of, of advisors out there with propositions that uh, were targeted to young people, uh, I don't think you'd find consumers gravitating towards uh, financial advisors. I mean, and we we researched this um, you know, very recently, and the majority of people we surveyed said that they don't, they don't think that paid for advice is aimed at someone like them. So they think it's for people who have a lot more money. Uh, you know, the other issue here is that it, you know, it costs money to see an advisor and you have to commit to that cost before you've even decided whether you're going to take out a product. And, and an analogy that I like to use is, um, you know, say you, 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 you go down to your local car dealership because you're interested in buying a car. And imagine if the, the salesperson asked you for 100 quid for advice and you don't even know whether you want to buy a product from, from the dealership. You'd be really, really averse to spending that money. And I think that it's the same principle in terms of um, forking out money for, for, for financial advice. Um, so then does the answer lie in kind of simpler products? So if people don't have as much knowledge or confidence of investing, if there were simpler products that guided them through that process, um, would that help to bridge the gap a bit more? So I, I think that investing does have to be made much more simpler for for consumers. Absolutely. Uh, the, the industry uses a lot of jargon, uh, a lot of confusing terminology, and it really spooks, spooks investors. And what the industry needs to do is make investing much less daunting. Um, so if, if you choose um, stocks and shares ISA, for example, and you know, you've entered your contribution level, you know, the next thing you're going to be asked to do is choose an investment. Now, some firms um, make this less daunting for, for consumers, but other platforms, they'll provide like a thousand options, which is really difficult for consumers to, to get their head around. So you know, we think that the challenge is making investing much, much less daunting and providing the sort of personalized support that people need through that journey to actually choose a wrapper, choose an investment. And so some people think that the banks can be the answer to this. I mean, they had a perhaps slightly checkered history in terms of offering um, investment products and kind of going down the financial advice route. Do you think people would actually trust banks to advise them on investments? And, and, And do banks even want to get into this market? I mean, banks are not the only answer. Uh, so you've got investment platforms, you've got comparison websites, fund managers. I think they all have a big role to play. Uh, but banks absolutely have a huge role to play because they've got they've got the customers, and customers are also going to their bank website to research savings and investment products. Now, consumers they do realise that what they're going to be shown by their bank is just what the bank provides. So there is going to be a, a trust element, but it, it tends to be a, a default for a number of consumers that they go to their bank website first when researching you know, savings products, investment products. Now, on the trust point, I mean, we, we were asking consumers, you know, would they would they trust their bank to make better use of the data that they hold on them? You know, would they tr- would they trust their bank to give them tools that would allow them to input their data to make investing simpler and easier? And an overwhelming majority of consumers said 
that yes, they would like their bank to make better use of their data and, and make it much more simpler and easier for them to make investment decisions. So, uh, you know, we think that banks have a have a big role to play, but they're just not the only only option out there. And yeah, there'll be a lot of banks who who are in the space who do want to get into the space. Absolutely. And. I think one one kind of bright spot for this area that we saw during the pandemic was lots more younger people got into investing. They either opened an investment account for the first time or um, they kind of added more to that and, and made investing more of a priority. What do you think changed during the pandemic that, that meant that those people that had, had just been saving their money previously took that step into investing? Yes, yeah, so I, I think it was a really big combination of social media and the opportunity people saw from the sell-off in markets and the volatility. So, you know, when, when the COVID crisis hit, you know, there was a massive sell-off in the stock market and people do understand the whole, you know, buy low, sell high uh, mentality and notion. So I think that, you know, COVID was a significant catalyst, but then social media combined with that meant that, yes, a lot of, a lot of young people uh, got, got engaged. Um, I, I was looking at some, some recent FCA stats, and, um, I, and I'll read them out to you, said that 76% of under 40s are driven by competition with friends and acquaintances. Uh, 58% of under 40s are driven by hype on social media. And in, in the year to June 2021, there was an 83% growth in ownership of crypto assets. And, and, and now one in 20 adults actually own crypto assets. So it's, yeah, COVID you know, plus social media has, has been a phenomenon, actually, for especially for the high risk investment industry. And um, while some of that is positive, some of that is quite scary in terms of those stats. And so how do you, if a lot of people are being driven by social media, I mean, there's a lot of scams and a lot of kind of high risk investments that aren't really suitable for some people going into them. So how do you encourage people to invest, but invest in the right things that have the appropriate risk level for them and that aren't getting them caught up in scams? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, Laura, because I think the traditional industry is not getting through. Uh, the the firms that are um, you know touting high risk investments are absolutely getting through, but they 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 are selling unregulated investments, so it is a real concern. Um, and and we think that the FCA need to do more in terms of uh, regulating the promotion of high risk investments. So you know, for example, if if people had more awareness of how much they could lose in high-risk investments, we think that that would be very powerful. And not just how much they could lose, but also how quickly they could lose it. I mean, it can be in, in the matter of, matter of minutes or hours, actually, that significant proportion of their investment can be, can be lost. Uh, and in these high-risk investments, there's, you know, there's, there's no diversification. It's all very highly concentrated. Um, the other thing that the retail investors aren't really aware of is uh, how how much of a disadvantage they are compared to the big trading houses um, who've, who've got much better access to data, who are using algorithmic trading um, to you know, to to invest, and how you know, it's very little they can do to compete against those 
those those big firms. Um, yeah, imagine if a platform told consumers that, well, in the last year, 70% of our customers actually lost a significant portion of their money on our platform. I mean, that would be quite, um, you know, quite enlightening, wouldn't it, for, 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 for consumers? Um, and, and these platforms, they, they, they are encouraging, um, you know, gambling type habits as well. Like, you know, there are platforms where you can trade against another person. So it's turning um, investing into like an Xbox game. So I think that um, consumers need, yeah, much better protection from how high-risk investments are, are promoted. And you mentioned there that kind of these more high-risk platforms are managing to get the message through where more traditional kind of um, platforms or services aren't. So what's the solution to that, Do the likes of... Um, us AJ Bell and Hargreaves and people like that have to take to social media more I mean what's what's the solution there for them to be heard yeah so, so Laura what what we see as the solution is to allow firms you know like the AJ Bells to provide much more engaging personalized support to consumers now the problem that firms have at the moment is that <clears throat> advice regulations make it really difficult to make support engaging because you can't take personal circumstances into account. Uh, if, you, if you start taking personal circumstances into account, then the firm ends up being in advice territory. And you know, without an advice license, uh, you, you, know, you, can't, you can't do that. So our, our solution to government and to, and to the regulator is that firms need the, the legislative framework to, to provide more personalized support to consumers. Now, what that's going to require, Laura, is legislative change. So what we're saying to, to Treasury is that a new permission needs to be introduced into, into the regulated activity order that will allow firms to personalize communications to, to consumers. Um, now, this, this permission would fall short from being advice, so it wouldn't actually allow a firm to provide any personal recommendation, but it would allow uh, the, the firm to take personal circumstances into account. Uh, and what we're saying to, to government and to FCA is that if you don't allow firms to personalise, then you just can't engage the consumer. It's traditional firms just aren't going to get get through uh, you know, compared to you know, unregulated uh, investment platforms. So that's all we've got for you today. We've got some great fund manager interviews coming up before the end of the year and into the new year. And next week will be our last episode before we take a little break for Christmas. So listen then for a very festive episode with Dan and I. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Music